Good evening, everybody, as we begin our seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews. Before we begin, I'd like to have a special prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open this book and study this important message, this important letter to the Hebrews, that we may better see our Lord Jesus, that we may better understand the message you have for us and the times in which we live. Guide us, direct us. And may we use this time wisely in thy presence. In Jesus' name, amen. For those who weren't here last week, we did chapters 5 and 6 together. Okay? So, tonight, we're going into Hebrews chapter 7. And as we do, we're going to be talking about Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a continuation of the theme that Paul was talking about in chapter 5. If you remember, look at your, your Bibles, if you have them, or the sheets I gave you, if you don't, and you will find that in chapter 5, he talks about the Aaronic priesthood. That's the priesthood according to Aaron. I want you to notice that chapter 5 starts talking about Aaron and his priesthood. Then it talks about Melchizedek. And then, all of a sudden, it starts talking about Christian maturity. In plain words, our need to grow up. And he starts telling us that we're spending too much time talking about what he calls baby food, and we need to be talking about adult food in reference to the priesthood and the priesthood of Christ. And that's kind of an interlude or an interjection between chapter 5 and chapter 7. It's just stuck in there. Now, what he does in chapter 7 He picks up with Melchizedek, and then he'll start going back to Aaron again. Now, remember, I talked to you before about something called a chiasm, where if he talks about it here, he'll talk about it there. If he talks about it here, he'll talk about it there. In this particular case, he talked about Aaron, he'll end with Aaron. He talks about Melchizedek, he'll, he'll... end with Melchizedek, not end. He'll begin with Melchizedek. And then he has this Christian maturity thing in the middle. What's he trying to do? He's trying to tell us that we need to understand Christ and his priesthood. That's what he's referring to. So as we open chapter 7, it continues the theme that we left off in chapter 5, verse 10. After the interjection. Now, during that interjection, during that chapter 6 and the end of chapter 5, he's talking about our dullness of hearing. In other words, the prophets have been telling us these things. They've been in Scripture. David talked about Melchizedek and his priesthood. They've talked about these things, but we didn't get the point because we're dull of hearing. And so he's telling us that we need to be careful of this because it can affect our spiritual growth. And so chapter 5, 11 through 6, 20, basically 
follow on one another. Now when we come to chapter 7, verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now there's a lot in that. And there's been a lot of controversy about it. And don't mind if Melchizedek is spelled two different ways. This has a C, the other has a K. King James spells it one way, New King James spells it a, a different way. Notice it says that he was the king of Salem. He was both a king and he was a priest. There were three people who were anointed in the Bible. The king was anointed with oil. A prophet was anointed with oil. And a priest was anointed with oil. What about Jesus? Isn't he prophet, priest, and king? You see? So his anointing, the word anointed means Messiah. Messiah and anointed are the same word. Okay? And so this Melchizedek, it says that he was a prince of the Most High. I was reading a book in preparation to this who say, well, this means that he was the, he was the high priest of the Canaanite god El, and that he was the high priest of this pagan god. Well, I don't think so, because it says the Most High God This is the God of heaven he's talking about. And I disagree with the author of that particular book, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. When I'll talk about that later. And he blessed him. Now, it's interesting that the name Melchizedek is not really a name, it's a title. The name Melchizedek comes from two words, Mel or Melchizedek. Melchi, which means king, and Zedek, or Zedek means righteousness. So he is the king of righteousness. Now notice it says of Melchizedek that he was from Salem. The word Salem means peace. Okay? And so he was the king of righteousness. He was also a priest of the Most High God and He was the king of the city of peace. Now, the new Jerusalem, isn't that the city of peace? Who's going to be our king in the new Jerusalem? You see. And so we find that Jesus bear the same title. If we go back to Genesis 14, 18 through 20, it tells the story. This is the first place we run into this man, Melchizedek. It tells us how how the ancestor of the Jews, Abraham, he paid tithes when he came back from the battle to liberate Lot. Lot had been captured. Lot was his nephew. Lot had been captured by invading kings when they attacked Sodom. And Lot was living in Sodom. So Lot got carried off into captivity. And Abraham and his, his uh, tribe, his uh, household, banded together with some of their friends, and they went and they liberated them. And 
Because of this, they got a lot of loot from Sodom. And when he came back, Abraham didn't keep any of it for himself. He let his friends have some of it who helped him. But when he came back, it said that he met this man, Melchizedek, and he gave him tithes of what had been retrieved. The one who does the blessing notice is thought to be superior or greater authority than the one who's being blessed. So Abraham, in paying tithes to Melchizedek, is blessed by Melchizedek, which indicates that Melchizedek, being a priest, high priest of the Most High God, was of superior authority to Father Abraham. And Abraham was the father of the Jews, you see. And he was the father of Aaron. And he was the father of the Levites. So therefore, Melchizedek was actually blessing them with a superior blessing than the Levitical priesthood could give. You see where he's going with this? Okay, let's look at verse 2. It said, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. The word tithe and tenth are the same. Sometimes the word remnant is thrown in. The word remnant is usually interchangeable in some cases with tithe. A remnant came back from Babylon. Basically speaking, it's a tithe that came back of the people. Usually we think of a tithe as relating to money. But in that case, it would be a tithe of the people. Notice, uh, also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being, by interpretation, the king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is the king of peace. Now, what is Salem? We'll come back to that. Notice, a tithe is a tenth. This indicates that tithing was in existence and practiced before Moses. Some people say, well, Moses instituted a tithing, and therefore, since the, the law was nailed to the cross, we don't have to tithe anymore, right? But notice, before Moses was even born, tithing was in existence and was being practiced. So really, it's apart from the law. Even though Moses talks about it, he records it, It is not a part as such. And Moses, when he received the law at Mount Sinai, he was really codifying some things that already existed. Melchizedek is a mystery man who has fascinated Bible students for centuries and still does. People are still curious about this man. The rabbis, who don't accept the book of Hebrews, they wondered and debated about him from Genesis 14, he's also mentioned in Psalm 110. And you'll find in this chapter, Psalm 110, again, is quoted. He's quoted it earlier. He's quoting it again. And we'll touch on that in a moment. So there are basically three places where this man Melchizedek is mentioned. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and now you run into him in the book of Hebrews. So, one's at the beginning of the Bible, one's in the middle of the Bible, and now, at the end of the Bible, you run into him again. 
Therefore, he must have some application to New Testament times. You see what I'm saying? And the New Testament ties into the Old Testament. Let's talk about the king of Salem. It mentions about Melchizedek that he was king of Salem. This is an ancient name for Jerusalem. Look at the tail end of the name Jerusalem. What's it say? Salem. Jerusalem was actually a Canaanite city. The Canaanites were descended from Ham. They were descendants of Ham. The Jews were descended from whom? Remember Noah had three sons? Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? The Canaanites came from Ham. Who did the Jews come from? Abraham come from. They were descendants of Shem. So the Levitical priesthood would come from the line of Shem. So what's this guy Melchizedek doing in there if he was descended from Ham? You see? It's just an interesting quirk in here. Now, before the time of David, Jerusalem was called Salem. It would later on change its name because there was a group of people, Canaanites, who were called Jebusites. They would call the city Jebus. Jebus was the name of the city at the time of David. David will change the name to Jerusalem. So it was Salem, it was Jebus, and then David changes it to Jerusalem. You'll see this in church history, that Constantine, the Roman emperor, when he moved the seat of his government over to Turkey, he actually settled in an ancient city called Byzantium. And he changed it very humbly. He changed it after, named it after himself, Constantinople. Later on, when the Muslims come in, they will change the name because they didn't want the name Constantinople because that's a Christian name. So they change it to Istanbul, which is more Muslim, you say. But it's all the same city. Byzantium, Constantinople, Istanbul, they're all the same thing. Here, it depends on who's in power. And so Salem becomes, Jebus becomes Jerusalem. Okay, and notice that this caused a problem to the Jews because if he wasn't a Shemite, then what was he? How could the priesthood come down through him? Now stop and think. That means that means that Melchizedek was a Gentile. Right? If you weren't a Jew, you're either Jew or Gentile, right? The word Gentile simply means the nations. That's all the word means. So if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. So a Gentile means everybody else. I, as far as I know, I don't have a drop of Jewish blood in me. Therefore, I'm an everything else. I'm an everybody else. Most of you are probably Gentiles here. I don't know if any of you are Jewish or not. But anyway, 
It means the nations. We're from the various nations. That presented a problem to the Jews. No wonder they say Paul says some things that are hard to understand. Hard to understand because they really didn't want to understand some of these things. You see, he caused them a real problem. Yet he was a priest and king of the true God and recognized as Abraham's superior. Ooh. The Jewish priesthood came from Abraham, and yet Abraham is paying homage to a non-Jewish high priest? Ooh. What does this tell? It tells that our God is a God of the Jews and the Gentiles. It also tells something else to me. It also tells that Canaan had a knowledge of the true God before any Jews even moved in. Why? They weren't far from Mount Ararat, right? And as they moved into this area, they carried with them some of the primitive knowledge of God. They knew who the God of heaven was. It seems from this that Melchizedek was preaching the true gospel to these people in his time. After Melchizedek leaves the scene, paganism takes over. Now it's very interesting that the Bible seems to indicate that the Jews, when they came out of Canaan, they went down to Egypt and went into Egyptian captivity, right? And they were in Egyptian captivity for 400 years. And the Bible said that they were in Egyptian captivity until the iniquity of the Canaanites had filled to the brim. In plain words, they're in cold storage. When they were in Egypt, they were in cold storage because the crossroads, I've mentioned this before, that Canaan is the crossroads to the world, right? The Gentile Canaanites had the privilege, if they had taken advantage of it, they could have spread the knowledge of the true God to Asia. They could have spread it up into Europe. They could have spread it down into Africa because everybody went through there. But when they decided to switch over to pagan gods, what did they do? They sent the knowledge of Baal over here. They sent the knowledge of Baal over here. They sent the knowledge of Baal and their pagan gods all over the world. And God says, I'm going to give you 400 years to get your act together. If you don't, I'm taking you out of there and putting the Jews in. And they will take the gospel. But, later on, the Jews fell short of their commission. And the Lord said, okay, you Jewish folks, you had your chance to take the gospel to the world, but you didn't do it. You know what? I'm going to call all nations to take the gospel to the world. 
And as a matter of fact, I'm going to have these Gentiles bring the gospel to you Jews. I'm going to have the Gentiles bring you back to your own Sabbath. I'm going to have them bring you back to your own dietary clean and unclean foods. I'm going to have these Gentiles tell you who your own Messiah is. You see? And he elaborates later on in the book, uh, uh, in the Bible, on this. So God put the Jews there for a purpose that the knowledge of true God would go all over the world. You'd be surprised how many of these ancient countries actually had a knowledge of the true God. There's a book called um, the Genesis, Genesis in Chinese. Do you know that some of the very letters that the Chinese use, you know, the characters, some of these characters, or most of these characters, are very ancient. And they were formed before Confucianism and Buddhism moved into China. And it's very interesting that they had what they called the supreme god. His name was Shangtai. Sometimes with a T, sometimes with a Z. Shangtai. And he was the creator god who created all things. And he was a god of love. And you know what? The letters themselves, the, the characters, the parts of them, when you dissect them, for instance, the word for tempter. Two people in a garden under a tree with a snake in it. Hmm. Does that sound at all familiar to you? You see? I'm not going to get in that. That's, that's another tangent. I've got a whole sermon on that. But anyway, uh, but you see, if you take some of these letters, I mean these characters, and you break them up, for instance, the word for boat is eight people in, uh, no, vessel. The word for vessel is eight people in a boat. Do you know of any... Anywhere in the Bible talked about eight people being in a boat? You see? So some of these ancient people had a knowledge of the true God. The Chinese did before Buddhism ever came in there, before Confucianism ever came in there, before atheistic communism ever came in there. And it's our job to bring them back to that ancient knowledge that they once had. So we find that it may have been that during the time of Melchizedek, they had knowledge that we didn't even know about. Now, Jebus was an idolatrous city in David's time. Could they once have known the truth and abandoned it? David sent Joab, his general, up a water channel. Uh, it's called the Warren's uh, Shaft. And I put a, an article of that in the material I gave you. It was in the city that Mount, where Mount Zion is located. It was the Mount Moriah where Isaac was about uh, to be offered by Abraham. 
It had much spiritual history and significance to the Hebrews. So this ancient city of Jebus is nothing more than Salem later on. Let's look at Melchizedek a little bit. Many have speculated on his identity. Some have thought that he was Adam. Some claim that he was the Holy Spirit, that he was an angel, that he was an extraterrestrial being. You know, a little green man came down. Based on the next verse, this is how they tried to explain the next verse. None of these fit the model of Scripture. E.G. White states that he was not Christ. He was only a type of Christ. Just like King Cyrus was a type of Christ, the one who freed the Jews so they could go back and build the temple. He was a type of Christ. And notice here, as we go on, in verse 3 it says, and this is the reason why people want to make him out to be all kinds of things. Notice it says in verse 3, he was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. Now, if you're going to take that literally, Melchizedek is still alive today. And as a matter of fact, if you're going to take that literally, he was never born, never had any parents, never died, never had any children, and he's still a priest today. If that's the case, does that supersede not only Aaron's priesthood, but Jesus' priesthood? You see, so you've got to be careful you don't read into this. What is this simply saying? He did not inherit his priesthood from his father. He didn't inherit it from his mother. And he didn't pass it on to his own children. And we don't know anything about when he was born. We don't know anything about when he died. But we do know that he was like Christ, and Christ is a forever priest. Where Melchizedek is gone, Christ is forever. Now notice it says, according to the order of Melchizedek. It doesn't mean he was Christ, or Christ was Melchizedek. It's saying he was of a kind like Many identify problems that come from this text, as do the theological problems. The context indicates that Melchizedek is not the subject of this chapter, but the order of Melchizedek is. The emphasis is on the order, not the man, you see. There's something about that order that's important. The priesthood of this man who did not have the proper legal credentials to the position is at heart. This text shows that he did not inherit the office from his parents. He did not have the proper birth and death records. And by the way, the Jews kept very accurate birth and death records. You can chase it back for centuries uh, in in the Jewish uh, records. And he did not pass the office on to his children. Christ was not like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was like Christ, you see. 
Today, you're hearing a lot about the Da Vinci Code. And in the Da Vinci Code, they're trying to say that Jesus had children. That he and Mary Magdalene uh, got married and had a, a child. And that's what the Holy Grail is all about. It's really his posterity. My friends, you won't find that in Scripture. As a matter of fact, that's contrary to it. And it also contradicts this model. Christ was not like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was like Christ, who is the theme of this passage. Both Melchizedek and Christ were the only one of their kind and did not get the priesthood from other men. So that is what those verses are referring to. Now he's going to say that Christ's priesthood is even superior to Melchizedek. Now we just said that Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to Aaron's, didn't we? Now Christ is even above that of Melchizedek. Why? Because there were certain things involved. In verse 4 it says, Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. A great man. Hmm. How great this man was. It's giving emphasis to show that Melchizedek's order was above the Aaronic priesthood. Spoils means plunder. You know, when one army conquers another, they take everything they can take. That's what he's saying. And he paid tithes of that which he conquered. In Hebrews 7, 5, And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Because Abraham was the great grandpappy or whatever of Levi, Levi received tithes of the people. But here a great-grandpappy is paying tithes to Melchizedek. But he's saying that Christ is even above Melchizedek. So what does that mean? Does that mean that Christ is worthy to receive tithes? Tithes and offerings. Notice, superior priesthood. Since the law, the Levitical or Aaronic, they're interchangeable, priesthood, allows priests to receive tithes, according to number 18, 21 to 26, of their brethren, since they descended from Levi and Abraham, that law and that tithe is also inferior to that given to Melchizedek by Abraham. He subjected them because the Levitical priesthood had not yet been born from him. And when he acknowledged the superiority of the order of Melchizedek. Now let's look at verse 6. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Now remember that the promises came down to the Jews through Abraham. God said to Abraham, you'll have many children and you'll have all this land, 
and you will be my people. That came down through Abraham. But Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So the promises that Melchizedek gave to Abraham were superior to ones that Abraham could give. And yet Christ is above Melchizedek. So are the promises of God even greater than that? Now, what's the point? Even though the promised Messiah and the chosen people were to come through Abraham, it was inferior in spiritual authority to one who did not have the right pedigree to be considered for the priesthood. Neither did Jesus have the right pedigree to be a priest, right? That's the point the author is trying to make. Jesus came from the wrong side of the tracks. Jesus was not born from the tribe of Levi. He was born from the tribe of what? Judah. The kings were supposed to come from Judah, not the priests. But Jesus is both king and priest. So, we got a problem. You can't be a priest unless you descend from Levi. So, we've got a problem. We've got to either change the law that governs who can be priest, or Jesus has to change his pedigree. How many of you can change your ancestors? You see. And so, in chapter 7, verse 7, it says, And without all contradiction, the less is blessed by the better. Now, notice that word better, because he's going to come along in the next chapter. And he's going to talk about a better covenant than the covenant that was given to Moses. He's going to talk about a covenant that's based on Jesus rather than on the law and what man can do. You see? He's building towards something. Chapter 7, all this talk about Melchizedek is building toward chapter 8 when he starts talking about the covenants. A covenant is a contract. And God is about to make a new contract. It's really the old contract. It's just the conditions that have been changed. Notice the blessing. Normally, the greater blesses the lesser. In Hebrews 7, 8, it says, And here, men that die receive tithes. The Levites, the priests, they die off. But there he received them, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Now, let's go back to this word better. In verse 5, 6, and 6, 20, it speaks of better priesthood. One that continues forever. Notice in 5, 6, it talks about a priest forever 620, order of Melchizedek. 711, it talks about the order of Melchizedek. 715 through 17, the order of Melchizedek. 720 through 21, it talks about the Lord has sworn. Now, Christ's priesthood is not based on the law. Christ's priesthood is based on an oath. So was Melchizedek's. Melchizedek, by the law, had no right to be a priest. God made him a priest. And here we find Christ is made a priest. 
But the difference is Melchizedek died and in 724 and 728 it says that Christ is a priest forever. He never dies. Therefore, there's no need for any other priesthood. He does away with the Levitical priesthood. Even today, he does away with human priests. Oh yeah, there's the priesthood of believers, but that includes all believers, you see. We are all to intercede in behalf of our our friends. We are to be praying for our friends, for their, their victory over sin, for their health, and all this. In that sense, we're priests. But to have a clergy that's above and has authority over the people, that nullifies that. And so we find that he's building the point that the priesthood would go out of existence. Now, there's a lot attached to that. The whole sacrificial system was based around the priest. And the whole sacrificial system included, what does a priest do? What is his work? What's the job of a priest? To offer sacrifices, right? Okay. But you're going to find that the sacrifice of lambs and oxen and sheep and goats, can that really bring us victory over sin and atonement with God? Uh Uh-uh. That sacrifice was about to change because now there was a lamb that was once offered for all time. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Remember at his baptism, didn't it say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world? Okay, so you see the sacrificial system is about to come to an end. And at the cross, when Jesus was crucified, the priest was about to offer the sacrifice and the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom by an unseen hand. And the, the priest dropped the knife and the lamb ran off because it's no longer effective. Jesus is the lamb. Not only that, too, but where does a priest work? Where does a priest work? He works in a temple, right? Well, if there's no longer the offerings for him to offer, The place where he offers it is about to become obsolete. You see? And in 70 AD, when the Romans come in, they destroy the temple. And the third temple, there is no third temple. The second temple was destroyed. So in plain words, the priest is out of a job. He doesn't have a place to work. Now, When did they bring in their offerings? They brought them in on certain days. These were the festival days. When they, a lot of times they would accumulate their tithes and everything, and then they would bring them in. But now, 
what is there? There's no place to bring them. The temple's gone. And so the sacrificial days lose their significance. And not only that, but the priests continually died. But now you've got a priest who never dies. You see, he is the offering, he is the priest, and everything is transferred to a new sanctuary. Not an earthly sanctuary, but a heavenly sanctuary. You see, something is going to change. People talk about how the law was changed. Yes, there is a law that was changed. And it will tell you. 7.9 says, And as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. This is a figurative language, so to speak. Hebrews 7.10 says, For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So he's still talking about uh, Levi being in the loins of Abraham. Levi wasn't born yet, it was saying. Now he's going to start talking about the imperfection of the Aaron priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. In Hebrews 7.11 it says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, in plain words, keeping the law could make you perfect, Paul says, hey, if there was ever a Pharisee, I was it. If anybody could be perfect by keeping the law, that was me. And yet, he was missing out on salvation because he didn't know the one who gave the law. You see, he didn't know Jesus. He was going contrary to Jesus, even though he was keeping the laws perfectly as he could. If, therefore, perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron? In plain words, if keeping the laws that were given through Moses and the sacrificial system that was given through Aaron, if that was sufficient, then why do we need Christ? We could just offer enough lambs and goats and so forth, and uh, we would take care of our sins. But he says they wasn't sufficient, that there was something more that needed to happen. Now, he uses the word, therefore. Let me go back to that first. Hebrews eleven, seven. Notice it says, if therefore, perfection. Okay, what's he saying? When he uses the word therefore, it means he's going to make some conclusions about what he just said. All right, therefore, brings a conclusion about the previous points made. He also uses the word if. If is a conditional statement. If you do this, that will follow. Okay? If you don't do that, that won't follow. Okay? Notion, notice that there's a conditional element that's involved with this whole thing. He also says perfection means fulfillment or ful- fulfillness. It's a spiritual completeness. It's a spiritual maturity. What did he talk about in verse 6? I mean, chapter 6. He was talking about 
you guys aren't grown up yet. You're not mature yet, you see? But as we understand the ministry of Christ, it leads us to Christian maturity. This is what he's getting at. Verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, aha, the priesthood being changed, there there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So, when we say, ah, the law was changed, therefore I don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were nailed to the cross, weren't they? If so, just leave your wallets on the table when you leave. Okay? If that is the law he was talking about. You see, he's not talking about the moral law. He's not talking about Exodus 20. The word law can mean anything. I mean, there's criminal law. There's, uh, there's uh, what are some other kinds? Criminal, huh? Health laws. There's all kinds of laws. Just like doctors. You wouldn't go to a, bi- um, a podiatrist if you got toothache. Wrong end, right? So, the word doctor can mean anything. The, when you're using the word law, as a general term. What law was changed? It is not talking about the Ten Commandment law. It's talking about the law that pertained to who could be priest and who couldn't. It also talks about the fact that it's not heredity that gives you the right to do it. It's relationship that does. Notice the law. The Ten Commandments are immutable. Mutable means it can't be changed, okay? The law mentioned here must change. Well, if the Ten Commandments can't change because they're a transcript of God's character, then there must be some other law that's being changed. What is it? It is the law that is based on the priesthood, the system served by that priesthood. These sacrifices, the meal offering, the drink offerings, the festival days, such as Passover, tabernacles, etc., were good until the Messiah appeared. They pointed to the coming of the Messiah. They didn't point back to creation. They pointed ahead to the coming of the Messiah. And when he came, he fulfilled them. He completed them. That's what fulfillment means. They became obsolete at his death and resurrection. He was a better offering, and his is a better priesthood. And with the demise of the Levitical priesthood, the law governing that order had to be taken out of the way. He died, it died with Christ on the cross. So when Christ died on the cross, the sacrificial system comes to an end. Now, the, it will continue on in Israel because they didn't, they didn't realize that the unbelieving Jews, they were still practicing it until 70 AD when the temple's destroyed. But notice what it says in Colossians 2.14. Here it talks about meal offerings. It talks about uh, drink offerings. And people are saying, see, this is saying that you can eat anything you want that that law is done away with. 
That has nothing to do with it. It has to do not with your stomach. It has to do with the type of offerings you're bringing to God. The grain offerings. The wine offerings that they used to bring. All of these things were nailed with Christ to the cross. That does not suggest in any way the Ten Commandments. And Martin Luther and John Wesley will clarify that for you. I don't have their quote in here, but I've got it elsewhere. So, what law was changed? Colossians 2, 14 through 16, it tells us that they were nailed to the cross. All right, let's look at Hebrews 7, 13. For he of whom these things are spoken pertain to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. In plain words, nobody from the tribe of Judah served in the altar before. So the tribe is important. As evidence of Christ's fulfillment of Scripture, he points to Jesus' descent from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. No priest has ever made atonement from that tribe. Look at verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. So then, what about the change? Since the ceremonial law should not allow Christ to be a priest, it prevented him from becoming a priest. Therefore, he either had to change the law or change his ancestry. Well, obviously, he's not going to change his ancestry. So the law of the priesthood had to change. You with me? If I lost you, wave your hands or jump up and down or whatever. Okay, look at verse 15. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. The prophecy predicted that there would be another priest who came up independent of Aaron and the law, who would be a priest appointed by God by an oath, just like Melchizedek did. He didn't inherit the job, and this one wouldn't inherit the job. But the difference is, this one would live forever. That made him a better priest. All right. This is why the resurrection of Christ is so important. A lot of people say, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, he says, it is finished. And that's the end of all there is to salvation. No, that isn't. What he's saying is, Jesus as the sacrifice, as the Lamb of God, his job there is finished. Now he gets a new job description. Now that he's given this blood, he takes this blood to the heavenly sanctuary where he applies it. So therefore, Jesus had to be inaugurated as the high priest in the heavenly sanctuary because the earthly sanctuary is going out of existence. Now at the time that Paul writes this, the sanctuary had not yet fallen because, you will see it shortly, He says these things are about to happen. So this, when Paul writes this, 
he had to have written it before 70 AD because he was anticipating the destruction of the temple. And remember Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, he said, not one stone will be left upon another. That's because the Romans would destroy it. Why did they destroy it? They were after the gold. They set it on fire and the gold melted went between the cracks. To get the gold out, you had to move the rocks. You see, the foundation one, that's still there. I've been there. I've seen it. But the temple itself that Jesus was talking about was destroyed because there's a heavenly sanctuary. You don't need the earthly one anymore. There are people today who want to rebuild that earthly sanctuary in Jerusalem. They want to build the third temple. But if they do and they reinstitute sacrifices, they are denying the sufficiency of Christ's offering. They are also, they would have to reinstitute men as priests, which is to deny the forever priesthood of Christ. You see? And so there's a lot of things that are being thrown around uh, as theology, which is not biblical. Look at 717. For he testifieth, thou art a priest, how long? Forever. In the same way that Melchizedek was. So repetition, he uses a lot of repetition. Next, he goes to Psalm 110, verse 4. Repetition is a sign of emphasis. It's a sign of importance. When Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you, what is he saying? He's saying, listen up, you guys, this is important. That's actually what it means. And when you see the same theme repeated, it's important. That's why he repeats Psalm 110 over and over again. And what's it say? What is David saying here? You see, remember when David said this, Solomon's temple hadn't even been built yet. The second temple hadn't even been built because David died before it was built. He's saying, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we find that Christ becomes our high priest by an oath. He swore that he would be. Look at verse 18. For there is verily disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. In plain words, he's saying that law concerning the priesthood was weak and unprofitable because priests kept dying and because they were using animal offerings instead of that of the Messiah. Notice, The former commandment, talking about the priesthood, is the ceremonial law that was changed by the death of Christ, not the Ten Commandments law that pointed to creation and God's unchanging character. It was the weakness of a dying priesthood and blood sacrifices in themselves for sin that made it necessary for them to be changed by a more perfect order. Let's look at verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. So here again, that word better pops up. A better hope. 
through the better hope in Christ Jesus, we are brought into the presence of God. That is what atonement means. It means at one We are brought at one with God. That's what atonement is all about. In the heavenly sanctuary. Remember we mentioned a couple nights ago, whatever, that we can boldly come before the throne of God. Man, I'd be scared to death to come before the throne of God. I'd be afraid his presence would cook me. But through Christ, who has taken on my human flesh, I can, my petitions, my prayers, can boldly come before the Father. And he will hear them. And notice, through the better hope in Christ Jesus, we are brought into the presence of God in his heavenly sanctuary. Reconciliation and eternal life with God are that hope. And the gospel refers to the second coming of Jesus as the blessed hope in the New Testament. Why is it the blessed hope? Because we are being delivered We are being delivered. We're going to cross over to the promised land. Not only that, but those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, they're going to be restored. You see, it's it's a jubilee. It's a a freedom. It's being reunited with our God at one moment. This is what he's talking about. See how the whole gospel mixes in together? I'm sorry, I get excited. Okay. I'm looking forward to it, man. I'm, I'm tired of doing funerals. I've got a funeral I've got to do next week. But when I say next week, I'm not scheduling my death, you understand. It's a memorial. It's a memorial service. Okay. But Hebrews 7.20 says, And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. It was not without an oath. He had to take an oath. Now, He did not become a priest by genealogy, but by taking an oath before the Father. He will be faithful forever to that oath. You know, if you lie under oath, it's called perjury. This is saying Jesus will not perjure himself. There is now no other priest between God and man. And anyone who tries to intervene between God or man, is guilty of blasphemy. You see. Hebrews 7.21. For those priests were made without an oath. They got it by heredity. But this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, in Psalm 110, verse 4, it is again quoted. It's the word sworn is used here, or swear. It refers to the oath of loyalty and obedience of that high priest. Here again, Psalm 110. A sign of emphasis showing that God meant what he said. Look at Hebrews 7.22. We're near the end now. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. What's a surety mean? It means a guarantee. You know, if you go to the bank 
and somebody wants to buy, borrow, maybe your kids or something want to borrow some money, they don't have any credit, you say, I will be surety for them. That means you're going to co-sign the loan, and if, if they don't pay it back, you end up paying it back. You see? Jesus says, I will be surety for you. He will become our surety, our guarantee of a better covenant or contract with God. Now he's leading into chapter 8. Because in the old covenant, the people said, after they saw the Ten Commandments and everything, they said, yeah, God, we'll do everything you said. We'll do it. We'll be perfect. We'll follow you. You'll be our God. We'll be your people. Yeah, we won't let you down. You know, how long did it take for that to last? But now, the new covenant isn't based on what you can do. It's based on what Christ can do and has done and will do, you see. This is the reason why people say, well, Jesus is my Savior. All right, that's fine, but he died for the whole world. You see, the question is, is Jesus your Lord? Your Lord means you own him. You're going to follow him and walk in harmony with his will. This is the perfect will of God. This is what the new covenant is based on. Look at Hebrews 7.23. And they verily were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. In plain words, they couldn't last forever. They died off. So therefore, they weren't sufficient to represent us as Christ did. What about the mortality? Many priests were once needed because they were mortal and died. Earthly mortal priests are no longer needed. Christ never dies forever. Now catch that. That is extremely important. The whole plan of salvation is based on the priesthood. Christ had to become the sacrifice before he could become the priest. And before he could become the sacrifice, he had to become the baby. You see? He was the creator. He now becomes the baby. He was also the lawgiver, by the way. He now becomes the baby. He now becomes the sacrifice so that he could die. Jesus was born to die. That was his whole purpose in being born, to die. Now that he is born, he, in order to, for him to become priest, he went down in the grave. He had to get out of that grave, right? Thus the resurrection. Thus the ascension. Thus the inauguration as the high priest. And when he's inaugurated as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the drippings of the oil of his anointing drops down and ignites on the heads of the apostles and we find that the church moves forward on earth as he moves forward there. The priesthood of believers moves forward as the high priest moves forward in the heavenly sanctuary. You see the, the beauty of this. Look further. It's an unchangeable priesthood. His priesthood is unchangeable. The need for earthly priesthood is obsolete. Verse 25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. 
That's extreme. The uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he liveth to make intercession for him. His whole purpose now is to intercede with you. And when he is done being your high priest, then he will come back as judge of the earth and king of kings, lord of lords. You see, Jesus wears different hats at different times. Notice, what about intermediaries? He is able to save completely all who come to him directly as the only mediator between God and man. There's no need for earthly priests. There's no need for dead saints intervening for us. There's no need for Jesus' mother intervening for repentant sinners. To stand between Jesus and man is blasphemy against his priestly office. So in 726, for such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He's above Melchizedek. Christ makes us holy, harmless or innocent, undefiled, and no longer practicing sin, as some do. He is exalted above any in heaven, other than the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's the highest human flesh that was ever taken on. He takes our humanity with him into the very courts of heaven. Verse 27. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. The the earthly priests, they had offered for their own sins before they could offer for the people. But Jesus was sinless. He didn't have to. He can offer directly for you. Once for all, Christ does not need to offer or be offered as a sacrifice any longer. He died once for all time. Human priests are sinful and need to offer sacrifices for themselves before they can offer one for the people. Jesus is sinless and offered himself once for all sinners for all time. This is the reason many feel that the sacrifice of the Mass is unbiblical. You see, the Mass is considered a sacrifice. They are sacrificing the body and the blood of Christ at the Mass, right? It's called the sacrifice of the Mass. Jesus is dying with every Mass. But it says he died once for all and that he's not going to die daily. In Hebrews 7.28, For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmities. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. By his oath, Christ is the perfect and only sacrifice and high priest, the only mediator between God and man forever and ever and ever. Amen. And thus, we find that we have a perfect heavenly high priest. In summarizing, 
Chapter 7 picks up where chapter 5 left off. Chapter 6 is a side trip on Christian maturity. And like Melchizedek, Jesus had no legal right to be a high priest, according to Moses. The law of priesthood had to be changed to accommodate Jesus' high priesthood. Jesus became our high priest due to an oath. He lives forever. Thus, we do not need other priests or daily sacrifices. He paves the way for the new covenant we're going to hit in chapter 8. With that, anybody have any thoughts or questions you want to share? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings, and we, we're thankful that we have a high priest in the heavenly courts, one who we can pray directly to, one who understands our needs, one who has borne human flesh and has taken our needs even before the throne of God. We thank you for a loving Father who sent such a Messiah to us. Help us to serve you because we love you, not because we have to. And it makes us want to serve you. It makes us want to keep your commandments because you said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Lord, give us the strength that we may do that to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.